0: 84% of the people said that they were either worried or concerned about the outlook for the world. Less than 4% were optimistic.
1: Welcome to Radio Davos, the podcast from the World Economic Forum that looks at the biggest challenges and how we might solve them. This week, what are the biggest risks we face? We delve into the World Economic Forum's annual Risks Report, which reveals that the top five long-term risks are all environmental. The
2: only question is whether we destroy the planet before we run out of carbon sources. Not very smart. There's a scenario, but unfortunately, it is still possible that we would end there.
1: And after two years of COVID, when we've all become ever more reliant on technology, what are the emerging risks there, and what dangers might lurk in the metaverse?
3: When the metaverse emerges, it will even more tightly connect individuals, businesses, and governance, and it will also provide cyber criminals with many more touch points to exploit. Greater opportunities for disinformation, fraud, deep fakes.
1: And from cyberspace to
3: outer space, Don't look
1: up. There are risks up there, too.
3: Space debris, nuts and bolts, broken satellites, empty fuel tanks. These objects move at more than 18,000 miles an hour, seven times the speed of a bullet. These objects pose a serious threat.
1: Subscribe to Radio Davos wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a rating or review and join us on the World Economic Forum Podcast Club on Facebook. I'm Robin Pomeroy at the World Economic Forum. And with this look at the forum's annual risks report.
3: Planning to be resilient in the face of the unexpected is really critical. Cool. This is Radio Davos.
1: Welcome to Radio Davos where we're talking about risks. After two years of COVID-19, most people would agree that the world maybe underestimated the risks posed by a new virus causing a pandemic. So what are attitudes now? Every year the World Economic Forum conducts a global risks report and asks thousands of people from the Forum's huge network in academia, business, government and civil society what they consider to be the biggest risks we all face in the short, medium, and long term. You can read the report on the World Economic Forum website and watch a presentation of its findings. The report was produced with the participation of Marsh, McLennan, SK Group, and Zurich Insurance. On this show, I'm joined today by two experts in the field of risk. Later on, Carolina Clint of insurance and risk management company Marsh joins me to talk about risks posed by advances in technology. But first, this is Peter Geiger, Group Chief Risk Officer at Zurich Insurance Group. Hi, Peter. How are you?
2: Hey, good afternoon, Rami. I'm good. How are you?
1: Very well, thanks. Thanks for joining us. Let's just, to get some of the headline numbers, let's listen to Sadia Zahidi, who's a Managing Director at the World Economic Forum, at the launch of the report, where you also were.
0: First off, it's very clear that this confluence of all of the factors that have come together, all of the challenges that we're currently facing, are leading to a fairly pessimistic outlook. 84% of the people that responded to the survey said that they were either worried or concerned about the outlook for the world. Less than 4% were optimistic about the outlook for the world. We asked people to look back at the last two years of the pandemic and identify which are the risks that became worse since the COVID-19 crisis started. And what's very clear is that, above everything else, social cohesion has eroded. There are deep concerns about livelihood crisis. There are concerns about climate action failure, concerns about mental health deterioration, and then finally, concerns about extreme weather. These five really stand out. We also asked people when some of these risks will become a critical threat to the world. And in the next couple of years, there continues to be deep concern around both the climate side of things and the social side of things. So extreme weather, livelihood crisis, climate action failure, infectious diseases, of course, the pandemic has not gone away. And then, of course, social action cohesion. On the other hand, if you look at the next sort of five to ten years out, the top five are all green, so climate action failure, extreme weather, biodiversity loss, natural resource crises, and human-made environmental damage. Somewhere in the middle of this, the, the next sort of two to five years out, there's concern about climate issues, there is concern about the social issues, but there's also concern around cybersecurity failure. There's also concern around um, geoeconomic confrontations. So you're starting to see quite a mix of things that are the bridge between the short term time frame and the longer term.
1: Sadia Zahidi of the World Economic Forum talking about some of the headline figures from the report. But here with me now is Peter Geiger of Zurich Insurance. Peter, I'd like to focus on what you wrote about for the World Economic Forum's agenda in a blog that we've published. The headline was, the disorderly net zero transition is here and it's time to embrace it. It's a very curious headline, a curious idea. Could you give us an idea what your thesis is there?
2: We're starting on the assumption that turning the world economy into a carbon neutral economy, is anything but an industrial revolution, as we've seen it with digitalization and, and many other instances. A, a development of that magnitude of complexity is very unlikely to be orderly and smooth. And so I think it's best to upfront accept that it will not be a, a, a walk in the park. But there will be hiccups, there will be stresses. And by the way, there will be many unknowns uh, in the positive and negative sense. Uh, Just take digitalization as an example. 30 years ago, we saw that coming before anyone was talking about smartphones even. And today, these smartphones rule the world. And so we expect the same thing to happen in the decarbonization. New technologies will kick in to shape the world by 2050. Which we don't know even today.
1: This goes to the heart of what this risks report identified as the top risk and in fact the top five risks as we heard from Sadia there are environmental, be that climate change, biodiversity risk or other forms of environmental damage. We're meant to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees celsius, instead we're heading for 2.4 degrees celsius and even the most optimistic scenarios We're only going to achieve, by what's on the table at the moment by the politicians, 1.8 degrees Celsius. We have to get net zero, basically pump no more greenhouse gas into the atmosphere by 2050. That means halving it this decade. It sounds quite neat when you put it like that, but when you actually look at how on earth you can possibly achieve that, you're suggesting this idea that it will ever be neat, certainly at this late stage in the game, is just pie in the sky. That's kind of the negative side. On the positive side, you seem to suggest, okay, it might be disorderly, but maybe we can still achieve it. Does that mean you're kind of optimistic in some way?
2: First, let me just make the point that the world ultimately will become carbon neutral because the energy resources from carbon are finite. I mean, that's well known and understood. Yes, they would last beyond 2050. Uh, So the only question is whether we destroy the planet uh, before we run out of carbon sources. Uh, Not very smart as a scenario, but unfortunately, I mean, it it is still uh, possible that we would end there. The point that we, we would actually suggest in terms of the transition is that the longer we wait, the more clear the negative implications of the ongoing warming will come through. And the higher the pressure will be to scramble, to still get there or thereabout. The more time you have to prepare for something in life, the more likely you are to to get there smoothly. And that's what what we see here in the transition path and, and as a major risk. We have seen a number of instances where energy prices have reacted to shock developments and how massive consumer response to to those shocks were, because then people become victim to the circumstance. You don't change your gas heating overnight. The planability and the time horizon, I think, is probably the most important responsibility of politicians to give the world the steer and the guidance for a smooth adaption.
1: And you talk about the current energy price spikes, and and you're saying... There could be plenty more of those along the road in the, in, in the coming years and decades.
2: Well, the easiest way to stimulate the economy for a carbon neutral future would be to give reliable price signals that the price of carbon will increase, not today, but into the future, because that would immediately redirect investments. And by the time the actual price increases, the impact would be much smaller. Now, not taking that opportunity will likely lead to a scenario where price increases will need to be forced through with little warning, and that will have all the negative repercussions.
1: Oil and gas prices historically fluctuate massively, don't they? Sometimes over very, very short periods. What you're saying is if carbon is priced in to energy prices gradually, it would be a bit more of an orderly transition. We would know, instead of facing a doubling of gas price or whatever, there would be some kind of a a more orderly transition.
2: Yes, and the period of elevated oil prices has also demonstrated how quickly the economy reacts in its investment behavior. Fleet consumption of new vehicles actually came down. It responded to a higher oil price. And it's a clear indication that the economic logic works and one wonders why it is not actually better employed in the process.
1: But I mean, as soon as those prices crash down again, everyone is enjoying cheap energy. So why not? I mean, that's what's happened, right, over over the last decades.
2: Indeed. But it clearly shows that the mechanism works. So the question is, do we have the political will to deploy them in the most effective way, which would be in a medium to long-term play.
1: You've managed to cram into your blog lots of very interesting points, you know, in an admirably short space. Some of the impacts of a disorderly transition, obviously there's the environmental impacts, but you've got things like, okay, Somehow, chaotically, we're going to move away from fossil fuels very quickly. We have to move away from fossil fuels quickly. But if it's in a chaotic way, you say more than 8 million jobs could be lost in the fossil fuel sectors alone by 2050. And you can expect an impact on transport, agriculture and heavy industries and far-reaching economic and social implications. I mean, it's pretty serious stuff, isn't it?
2: Well, yes. and History has shown that any industrial revolution has destroyed a lot of jobs. I mean, if you were a stable groom, combustion engines were not welcome. But every industrial revolution has created more jobs than it destroyed. and And I think for me, that's a core source of optimism. The world was better off after the painful process every time. And, and who would want to go back to the days before computers and to the days before combustion engines and, and and so. At the end of the day, I'm proposing the optimistic perspective on it to allow for the change. And I think we see that as one of the risks is Especially in Western Europe, there is is what I would call structural conservatism. And the pandemic has demonstrated that. I mean, we've seen many countries where where there were less business failures during the pandemic than in regular years, which is totally counterintuitive. And, And the ability to let businesses fail, I think, is critical in a transition process.
1: So you say we risk a chaotic, and then you put, or disorderly transition. It looks like you've chosen this word disorderly to be a little less scary than chaotic. And it also reminds me of this, this word disruption, which in Silicon Valley is a good thing, right? Let's disrupt the economy. But as we've mentioned, some of those disruptions or some of that disorder could be very, very painful for, for a lot of people. So where are the opportunities then in this disruptive or disorderly transition?
2: Well, first, the world will not become less energy hungry, I believe. So alternative sources of energies will need to be developed. Uh, That is a business in itself. And we've seen with solar panels how that could go. And that's that's one source. The world will still want mobility. So how to provide mobility? There will most likely be structurally very different answers than today. 20, 30 years out. And all of this means new business opportunities, whereas old business opportunities will disappear. And again, I mean, there is the famous examples in history. Nobody wants to be Kodak. And then still businesses fail to get on the train and and, and they become Kodak. They become obsolete. And I think from a business perspective, that's the key. Everyone needs to kind of think about how they can stay relevant in a carbon-neutral world. Yeah, Transportation so when... is a classic example of that. Currently a, a carbon-hungry sector, but that's not uh, that's not written in the book. There is other alternatives.
1: It's, it's a fascinating proposal, but at Kodak, the thing there was suddenly digital cameras were around and people wanted it instantly, and the idea of sending a film off and getting it developed, just no one wanted that anymore. When it comes to fuel... If you burn a fossil fuel, you're going to get heat. And if you get that, you can get electricity. And it might be that it's very cheap, particularly if the richer world is moving away from it. A lump of coal will still be a lump of coal, unless it's banned or in somehow priced out. Somewhere in the world, someone will want to burn that coal for the benefit it has. A, a, an old film camera you know, is only of any use in a museum anymore. But coal and oil and gas will still provide heat and light and electricity you know, for for decades to come, weren't they?
2: Which is why it is very important to put the fair price tag against the impact the burning has. And I think these price signals would be much more powerful than ultimately having to ban it. That's the other scenario that you ban certain things. It's the exclusion approach, uh, the the regulation approach. I think that's a defensive approach. And and as always in life, defensive approaches are a, a lesser solution from a wealth creation perspective.
1: Peter Geiger, Group Chief Risk Officer at Zurich Insurance Group, talking about the most severe long-term risk identified by the Risks Report 2022, Climate Change. To look at some of the risks that have grown in importance, I spoke to Carolina Clint, who is risk management leader, Continental Europe at Marsh, a company that provides insurance and risk management services. She talked to me about technology, space and the metaverse. Carolina, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. You wrote a very interesting blog for the World Economic Forum's Agenda website. Read the headline, Three Global Risk Areas That Demand Cosmic Action, Space, the Metaverse, and Planet Earth. You couldn't have picked three kind of sexier top headlines there. Why did those grab you from the report?
3: You know, (laughs) thank you. Yeah, I think the reason why I grabbed those is because it's very forward-looking. And I think the whole point with the Global Risks Report is really help business leaders, governments, really anyone uh, who's interested in taking a long-term view on the constantly evolving risk landscape and what is on the horizon. And when I looked at the report, I thought, okay, let's pick three that are sort of very forward-looking and might not be on the agenda for, for many. And I thought that was quite interesting.
1: Yeah, because we've talked a lot over the last two years of we weren't factoring in as a much pandemic risk. Now we're all aware of the risk. that, Of course, the experts on pandemics were telling us for years, you've got to prepare for a pandemic, and then it could be argued we didn't do enough. But the pandemic itself you argue in your article, has has made certain other things more of a risk, such as technology, because you say we've become so much more reliant. You and I are talking now on a kind of a Zoom platform. You know, millions and billions of people probably have done that much more in the last two years than they've ever done before. And that's just one element of how we're much more reliant on technology. Why has that increased the risk, do you think?
3: Well, I think, first of all, we were already becoming highly dependent on technology before the pandemic. But then over the past two years, we've seen such an accelerated digital transformation, both across public and private sectors. So industries have undergone You know, rapid digitalization, workers have shifted to remote working where possible, and the platforms and devices facilitating this change have multiplied. And I think many companies are still looking to further rethink their business offerings and the way they work. I mean, there's even more pressure than before to continue digitizing and automating. And what we have to recognize is that this has many times been built on the backbone of really aging technology infrastructure and sometimes insecure network protocols. And this in turn has led to supply chain disruptions, greater exposures to cyber attacks, and it's it's just opened up more avenues of attack for threat actors. And what we've seen the past two years is that ransomware has been that particular you know, signature cyber threat. And as it is pointed out in the report, to the point that we now see ransomware as a service even.
1: In what, what way is ransomware a service?
3: Ransomware as a service is basically a tool for criminals that don't have their own capacity in terms of expertise or access to digital malware. They outsource it incredible wow. right wow <laughs> yeah <laughs>
1: and, the, and the knock-on effect obviously is that, that increases the risk there's more ransom demands there's more hacks into um, people's computers or companies computers and you note in your blog that the insurance price if you want to insure against this has gone up by 204 percent in a year Mm. and that if that keeps going on it's, mm. it won't be many years be- before it's completely unaffordable
3: mm. That's well, I mean, right.
1: what is what is the outcome of this how how a company is going to deal with this massively it's such a rapidly increasing risk
3: yeah it is a rapidly increasing risk you're absolutely right and i mean cyber attacks are not new but they continue to intensify and of course that will have you know cascading uh, effects and I think there are a lot of things that a company can do to improve cyber resilience. But at the same time, we're at the point now where companies that are quite mature in their cyber risk mitigation plans are being rewarded by uh, insurance carriers and aff- afforded and you know allowed to sort of uh, have that capacity ac- uh, accessible to them while companies that are still in the infancy and like struggling with finding ways of mitigating cyber risk. Might actually not find a carrier that will accept the risk, so it's sort of that's where we are now in terms of the um, development of this risk, which is of course a huge challenge, of course, for many companies.
1: On Radio Davos, a few months ago, we spoke to the head of the U.S. Homeland Security on on cybercrime and ransomware, and he really pointed out the fact that companies are paying ransom at vast amounts. Who are we to tell them not to if they've got to unlock the, their business which has been locked up? But by doing that there's a constant inflation then to the ransom that can be demanded if criminals know companies are going to pay up part of the problem then of this increased risks due to our increased reliance on technology is this old infrastructure another example of that that you give in your article is about the metaverse you know probably one of the most trending words of the last year again you say if the metaverse develops without giving a thought to what the risks of that might be and how we might manage the risks of it, it could be quite a messy place. I mean, could could you expand on that a little bit? Maybe we should think about, for anyone listening to this who's still not quite sure what the metaverse is, what is it?
3: Yeah, uh, that's great, actually, that we start there, because I think we should talk about what the metaverse is first. And I think the easiest way to explain it is this, the concept of metaverse is that through history, we have constantly been moving towards more and more engaging mediums, right? So we've gone from text to photo to video. And the metaverse is what comes next. So it's an internet that you're not just looking at through a screen, but that you're actually inside of. So the metaverse is a shared virtual three-dimensional world, or even worlds, that are interactive immersive and collaborative. So that's how I would explain it if that makes sense.
1: Why would being in the metaverse be any more risky than, you know, sharing messages on on a social media app or something? What 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 would be the additional risks?
3: Yeah, so when the metaverse emerges, what will happen is that it will even more tightly connect individuals, businesses and and governance. And we will see an increase in digital tools and platforms. So that, in turn, will expand the number of critical failure points for the global internet. And it will also provide cyber criminals with many more touch points to exploit. So I think that's part of it. But it will also create greater opportunities for disinformation, fraud, deep fakes. And of course, it also raises questions around uh, access and data privacy. So there are actually a a whole host of challenges that come with this development.
1: The deepfakes one's really interesting, isn't it? Because already, if you're bombarded, as some of us are sometimes, by trolls, you're never sure whether that's a real person or, or some kind of bot. If you're yourself inside, you're an avatar or something inside this metaverse, and people are coming up to you inside it. They could look just like your best friend, couldn't they? Or, or someone famous. And it's not really them at all. I no, mean, that's it f- feels yeah. like science fiction. And I wonder how many years it will be until we'll listen back to this and it'll sound well, why is that strange? You know, this could be everyday occurrence, couldn't it? In, I don't know, X amount of months or years time.
3: So this... Um- change and development might actually happen sooner than we think. And, and I also think the pandemic has sort of accelerated it. Because if you think about the switch to remote working, and as we continue looking at what the workplace in the future will look like, and many companies are now looking at hybrid uh, versions. And I think the metaverse can sort of bridge the gap in a way. And maybe that will be sort of the place we actually work together in the future. So it's quite exciting to see how this develops.
1: Okay, well, look out for that. Now, another massively trending issue that you've identified in your article is, of course, space, and with the famous don't look up. Now, the risk from a, a meteor strike, which is what that film is, is about, is a real one, but the, the risks you're looking at are far more tangible and far more likely, aren't they? What are the risks we're facing in space?
3: Not that long ago, we really thought of space as the final frontier. And it is so accessible now. In 2021, we saw a record number of 145 orbital space launches globally. And I think the number is 70,000 launches that are planned for the next decade.
1: That's like two or three a week or something, right? Mm. At at current rates. Exactly. Launching launches into space, which right. used to be something, you know, a generation or two ago, you'd gather around the TV to watch a launch into space. Now it's just, oh, we're, we're going to send up a little satellite. Here we go.
3: Yeah. No, that's right. And space tourism finally got off the ground. Uh, we saw several private sector launches, right? Um, and in addition, the first commercial space station was announced. And I, it, it looks like that will be operational in 2024. So it's all really exciting, right? But at the same time, we are now dealing with dated space governance frameworks, which are coming under considerable pressure. So definitely some growing security concerns. And then, of course, the threat of harmful space debris. And and to your point, this is a real risk. There is actually quite a quite recent example where an anti-satellite weapon test left a cloud of Debris in orbit that was threatening not only the International Space Station, but also other vital satellites. And what will happen if a satellite gets hit is that that will impact and put global communication, as we know it, at risk. So, and what we have to realize is that our planet is surrounded by this literal junkyard of human made space debris, nuts and bolts, broken satellites. Empty fuel tanks. And given the fact that these objects move around the Earth at more than 18,000 miles an hour, that is seven times the speed of a bullet, these objects pose a serious threat. And also could, put, uh, could actually pose an environmental hazard if they fall to Earth without burning up on re-entry.
1: What about solutions? This podcast is about the world's biggest problems and how we might solve them. We can't solve all the world's problems, all the world's risks in the few minutes we have available here, but are there some kind of headlines that this report points to or that you, having thought about all this, can think to where might we find some of the solutions to some of these
3: risks? Hmm. I think if we start with um, the environmental risk, I think the good news is that the world as a whole is taking more aggressive action on climate change and i think from a you know the corporate lens i think the opportunity is for for companies to prepare for that increasing pressure on climate issues that we will see from all stakeholders Because there will be a push from investors, customers, employees. The regulatory environment is going to create a push. So companies are going to have to develop low-carbon technologies and pay attention to changes in, in consumer behaviors and investor preferences. It is an area that will develop quickly. But I think for companies that are flexible and agile, that's also a huge opportunity. So that's on the environmental side. But then, generally speaking, I think the main theme of the final... Chapter of the report is resilience. And I think resilience is one of those key words when we think about the future and how to take a long term view of risks and opportunities. And if you think about it, over time, we have as society rewarded efficiency over resilience and growth over sustainability. And I think what the pandemic has exposed is that being too lean can really leave companies vulnerable to shocks. So allowing for redundancies and a little slack in the system, which, by the way, some may consider inefficient, may actually enable businesses to adjust and find alternative models better and in a, you know,
1: quicker. And the risk report itself, I suppose, might help businesses confront these risks.
3: Oh, absolutely. I think the global risks report is a brilliant resource for businesses as they navigate both the ongoing pandemic stresses, but also as they look at that changing risk landscape and what is on the horizon. Because it isn't enough to consider the day-to-day risks of doing business. We're at the point now where planning to be resilient in the face of the unexpected is really critical.
1: Carolina Clint of Marsh. And before that, Peter Geiger of Zurich Insurance. You can find their articles on our website, as well as the entire risks report. Go to weforum.org. And if you're listening to this episode soon after it's dropped, don't forget that between the 17th and the 21st of January, the World Economic Forum will be hosting the Davos Agenda 2022. Heads of state and government, leaders from business, academia and civil society will be attending the virtual event to talk about the world's biggest issues. You can follow all the action at that same website. And Radio Davos will bring you some of the highlights if you're watching that and you want to nominate any moments from the Davos agenda for inclusion in the podcast please drop me a message into the World Economic Forum podcast club on Facebook this episode of Radio Davos was presented by me Robin Pomeroy with thanks to Gail Markovitz and Alex Court studio production was by Gareth Nolan please subscribe to never miss an episode until next time thanks to you for listening and goodbye